Today, uh, we're starting a new series. I don't know what it is, but every time Scott's gone, we start a new series. I open the book of Ephesians. I open the book of Romans. Today, I get to open the book of Psalms. I want to ask you a question. Have any of you ever had a quiet time in the book of Psalms? Raise your hand if you ever have. So it's an awesome book, and we have to figure out, we get to cover seven Psalms out of 150. I know, are we going to cover your favorite? Psalm 23, Psalm 51, Psalm 1, Psalm 8, uh, Psalm 32, Psalm 37. But today I'll tell you why we're starting with Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is actually the very first Psalm written. I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but it reminds me of somebody's favorite movie of all time, and he's not even here. Do you know that Josh Antiojo's favorite movie is The Sound of Music? <laughs> and his favorite song potentially might be Do, Re, Mi, and it begins with the words, let's start from the very beginning, and that's what I'm going to do this morning as we look at the book of Psalms. A big stretch is an opening, but I'm going to go with it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're going to have a great time in your word today as we look at Psalm 90. May you enlighten our hearts today. Help us to apply God's worth to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Psalm 90, and I want to give you some background. Now, there's a very important word in the book of Psalms. It's the word selah, selah. It means pause or crescendo or a musical interlude. In fact, we were, before we decided to name this series Express Yourself, we were going to go with the idea of uh, Selah, a pause in the Psalms. This gives me the opportunity to do a shameless plug for the next person I'm going to put on this slide, my granddaughter, whose name is Selah. And my daughter named her because of her love for the book of Psalms and this word Selah. She had no idea after raising two very rambunctious boys, Selah has become the pause in their family, and it's my way of working my granddaughter into the sermon, and now we'll continue. So let me give you some background on the Psalms. First of all, second of all, this was Israel's hymn book. This is Israel's hymn book. Fifty-five times we see in the titles to these Psalms to the chief musician or choir director. You know, Chad could have a heyday with just doing music from those 55 psalms. They were meant to be accompanied by stringed instruments, and literally, we know that the major theme of the book of Psalms is praise, the idea of praise. And in fact, there's a very special part of the psalms, the steps in the temple, the songs of ascent. If you just studied Psalm 120 to 134, you would see this almost uh, multi-part musical called the Songs of Ascent. Now, number, number three, we have 116 titles for these 150 uh, psalms. So 116 titles tell us exactly kind of who was written to or by and what the context is. What many people don't know is the psalms are organized in chronological, not in chronological order, but according to the five books of the Pentateuch. This is amazing. And so, if you read Psalms 1 through 41, those roughly uh, kind of correspond with the book of Genesis. And in those Psalms, you'll see a lot of, of topics about man and creation, and they're very personal. In fact, Jehovah uh, God is used 272 times. 
Then Psalms 42 to 72 roughly uh, cover the book of Exodus, and you'll see a lot of Psalms about deliverance and redemption, very devotional. The word Elohim is used 164 times in those books. Then in the Leviticus Psalms, our, our Leviticus Psalms are Psalm 73 to 89, and those Psalms tend to be about sanctuary and worship, uh, and they're very historical. You'll find a lot of that there. Then in Psalms 90, where we're starting, so it's the beginning of the fourth book, quote-unquote, Psalm 90 to 106 corresponds with the book of Numbers, and it has to do with wanderings and rest from wanderings and the covenant relationship with God, and they tend to be more general. And then the last section, Psalm 107 to 150, corresponds with the book of Deuteronomy, and it says the word of the Lord, and they tend to be the most natural of the Psalms. Another little tidbit is this is the most frequently quoted book in the New Testament. So when you quote Old Testament passages, 116 of the 287 quotations from the Old Testament come from the book of Psalms. And of course, Jesus quotes from the Psalms more than any other book of the Old Testament. Then a couple other things. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. We know that. Roughly, if you just turn to the middle of your Bible, you'll land somewhere in Psalms. But what is the longest chapter then in the book of Psalms, which then by definition becomes the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119, and you're very glad that I'm not preaching on that because that would then become a four-part series with me preaching it, right? I could never do that in one day. And so the interesting thing about Psalm 119, I kind of, this was really interesting to me. It's, it, with, in those verses, it's written as an acrostic. Now, I know you think I like acrostics. I like alliteration. If you don't know the dis- differences, you know, acrostics are when it spells out a word like team or stop or go, uh, meeting or whatever. So the bottom line is there's 22 stanzas of eight verses in Psalm 119, and each one of those stanzas begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it goes from Aleph to Beth, and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet 22 from A to Z, quote unquote. And if you like that kind of thing, interesting enough, you like acrostics, there are nine other Psalms that are set up like that, and you can go to the website, look at my notes, and geek out about that, and and just do a whole study on acrostic Psalms. Now, the obvious question is, who wrote the Psalms, all right? So let's have some nominations. First of all, is there one author? No, there's multiple authors of the Psalms. So who's the most prolific author in the Psalms? David, right? He writes 73 out of the 150 Psalms. So almost 50% are attributed to David. And many of those Psalms that David writes, in fact, 14 of them are directly tied to events in his life. So a, a cool way to study the life of David is just study those 14 Psalms and you'll see what happens in David's life through those Psalms. And so that's why we went with the theme, express yourself, because we see that there's other writers besides David. Now, trick question, who's the second most prolific writer with 50 Psalms written? Unknown. That is correct. We don't know who wrote those 50 Psalms. And then it drops way down from there. Asaph wrote 12, Sons of Korah 10 or 11, uh, and then Solomon 2 or 3. And the only one that, uh, that Moses wrote is the one we're going to look at today, Psalm 90. 
Now, as you're reading the Psalms, you'll be reading along, you go, wow, that's one kind of psalm, and this is so different. I want to give you four types of psalms that we may be looking at over these next seven weeks. The first are the psalms of praise. Most famous one would be Psalm 150, where praise the Lord's used 10 times, or Psalm 145. There's praise songs. A lot of times you like to do your quiet time, you're running, you want to listen to praise music. The second kind of psalm written are confessional or confession psalms. Just off the top of your head, what might be the most popular one? I gave you a hint there. Yes, Psalm 51. Thanks for playing. Um, Psalm 51 is probably one of the most famous confessional psalms written. It was written by David. You know the story. I won't get into it. Then there's a third kind. They're the messianic psalms. These are the psalms. There's 17 of them. For instance, uh, Psalm 22 that are written and prophesying or typologies of Jesus Christ, His birth, burial, resurrection, death, all those things, ascension, etc. And then the Psalms that when you're having a bad day, you wish you could pray. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. Let's say that word together, imprecatory. These are, you know, Judgment on the evildoers. This is when you're having a really bad day at work and you want to pray an imprecatory psalm against your boss. No, you probably shouldn't really do that. Uh, But these are those psalms. There's 12 of them, kind of slay the evildoer psalms. And not surprisingly, David writes 10 of those 12 imprecatory psalms. Now, think about David's life. He's crowned, you know, anointed as king, and it takes 14 years for him to become king in those 14 years, what's going on in his life? Who's chasing him? A crazy man named Saul, who's the king of Israel. And so he's always like, Lord, come on. But he won't, you know, uh, do anything to God's anointed. And so uh, we need to just pause here for a second because though like, we're kind of kidding about that, some of us go, no, no, I'm all for, you know, divine judgment. Let's, let's clarify here. We're not talking that God's giving you an excuse for human revenge here in these imprecatory psalms. But what we're saying is that God, what, what David's calling God to is justice. God, may justice prevail. Don't let the evildoers win out. If that intrigues you, then you've got to come back next week. Because how many of you have ever wondered this question? Why do the bad guys seem to win? Does anybody ever think about that? Like, seems like good, bad things happen to good people, and the, and the bad guys kind of get away with it. Anybody just willing to raise your hand and say, yeah, sometimes I wonder if, why that's happening. Next week, you've got to be here because I'm going to deal with Psalm 73 where we're going to look at that exact, exact uh, idea. Now, how are they written? Are they just written all at one time and they all got in a room and said, hey, I'll, I'll do the first four, you do the next four, you know, we kind of collaborate? No. These psalms are written over a thousand years. So this first one, Psalm 90, not Psalm 1, Psalm 90 is written by Moses in 1490 B.C., right as they're coming into the promised land after 40 years of wandering, all right? And the last one is probably written in around 440 B.C. by Ezra, and that's, that's Psalm 126. All that's background on the psalms. So now let's get to Psalm 90 itself, and let's, let me give you just a little context on Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is written by Moses, first psalm written, we've got that. But it's not his only song that Moses wrote. Did you know that? He also wrote two more songs, not psalms, songs from Deuteronomy 
32 and 33. Now, last hour, I got to believe there's got to be someone who knows the song of Moses from Psalm 32. I said I was going to sing it, but I'm going to sing it for you this hour because I was chicken last hour, but I have confidence I can do it because you're smiling more than the first hour crowd. It goes like this, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Did anybody but me ever learn to sing that song? Seven of you now. That's three more than last hour. And it's in a round and you sing it. Well, Moses wrote that as well. And so this is in his first attempt at writing a song. It's sung by, this psalm is sung by the Israelites at the tail end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And for those of you who like the old hymns, Isaac Watts composes his hymn, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, based on this psalm. Now, you say, why Psalm 90, John? Well, because you would have figured we'd start with Psalm 1. I want to start with the first psalm, but I think this has great application for those of us who are in our own spiritual wilderness today. Let's be honest. You come to church today, you come from all walks of life. Here, Moses is writing about the travails of what's happened in the last 40 years while they're wandering in the wilderness. But some of you are in a different kind of wilderness today, aren't you? You never expected to find yourself in a place where you've been in pain physically for as long as you have been for surgery after surgery that has just gone wrong and you just wonder if it will ever end. Or maybe you're in a marriage that just exploded and you never dreamed you'd be fighting for your financial life because your ex is just taking you to the cleaner. Or maybe you're caring for an aged parent and they're suffering with chronic pain and you wonder when the Lord will take them home because you, your heart aches because of the pain they're in. Or maybe there's a relationship that has completely disintegrated and they used to be your best friend and now you barely talk and the emotional wilderness you find of lack of connection with someone that you loved and cared for is breaking your heart. Friends, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but I believe that we all go through wilderness times in our lives. And this is the psalm to remind yourself that that journey will have a conclusion someday. And I think there's great hope for us if we've been in that journey. And that's why I want to cover this psalm today. So let's jump into it. Look at the first point on your notes here. And if you're note takers, I'm a big fan of you writing and um, so, if you haven't already been taking notes, grab those, and there will be three big ideas from these verses. The first is, God's eternality is timeless. We see that in verses 1 and 2. God's eternality is timeless. Look at the verses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So, you're going to see a lot of distinct contrasts in, this, in these few short verses. The first one is between God and man. 
God is our dwelling place, it says here. But there's a difference as he describes God. There's a difference between eternality and immortality. Let's just make sure we're clear. God is eternal. That means he has no beginning or end. God precedes Genesis 1.1. He's not the new kid on the block. He's been around not a long time. He's been around forever. Now, the flip side is man's soul, us, our souls are immortal. Now, we say, what? What does that mean? Physically, we're mortal. You're going to die someday. I felt I was going to die several times while I'm pounding nails when I could not reach the ceiling. That's why we had Greg there. Greg, can you handle that one? And he just reached up and pounded the nail on the ceiling. We all have physical limitations, and our lives are going to end, and we're going to die someday. But when we die, our soul is immortal. It's going to go one place or the other, not three. I don't believe there's a purgatory. There's no middle ground. You're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. Now you say, wow, that's so stark. But the bottom line is God is the eternal one. It also reminds me there's no reincarnation. There's no recycling here on human, on the physical level. There's no second chances in that sense. We got one life to live. And my question is, where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? Someone wrote this quote. It's, it's a thoughtful quote, so you might not catch it the first time. Eternity is the answer, not simply the antithesis to the brevity of our life. Eternity is the answer, and someday, many of you in this room who are Christ followers will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is this something only in the Psalms? We see this throughout the Bible. I could talk about God's eternality as just a one-sermon uh, standalone, Psalm 102.27, but you are the same and your years have no end. Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. We know the more famous cousin to this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the what? Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is to come, the Almighty. Proverbs 8, 25 to 27, before the mountains had been shaped. You see, that same idea of the mountains here in this text is that as Moses is writing, he's saying that's the most durable thing he could think of, that we're enduring, and he says God's before all of that. And we know from Ephesians in our study, 1, 4, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. So the first idea here when we're in the spiritual wilderness of our life is we got to realize God's eternal. God's eternal. Point number two, but man's existence is terminal. God is eternal. Man's existence is terminal. And I want to suggest in verses three to six that we're just a speck on eternity's timeline. Look at the verses. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed and it even fades and withers. Now, the best illustration I've ever seen, and you probably see it on YouTube, is when Francis Chan takes that rope and there's a little red paint on the end of it, and then the rope stretches out forever. That's our life, a speck on this rope that goes forever. Here's my illustration. 
How many of you can see the pencil mark I put next to the cross on the back wall? Yeah, you can't see it. That's your life in the grand scheme of the, the speck of eternity. We're just a, a, a glimpse and we're gone. 1 John 2.17 says, the world is passing away. It's transitory. Our lives are transitory. Now, interestingly, he brings us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. He says, we started from dust. We're going to return to dust, right? And uh, it's a kind of an allusion to creation there. And he says, a thousand years are like forever, but in human years, that's just like working with junior hires, according to Chris. Uh, a thousand years, that's 14 generations. You know, from David to Christ's birth is only 14 generations. And that seems like an eternity for us because we'll, we don't live that long. And so he gives four different illustrations in those three verses. It's like a blink of an eye and our lives are over. Like a flash flood, it's washing something away. Like a dream you can't remember when you wake up. Or like grass that dies when there's no water. So it's very, life is like that. I really am not kidding that I'm feeling my age, and I'm only 61 years old. You know, I'm 61 years young, except when you're standing on concrete, pounding nails and doing stuff in Mexico, my feet were tired. I felt like, I felt like Walter Brennan. No one will know who this is unless you're over 60. Walter Brennan, it, young whippersnappers. I could barely move, and I'm going... I thought I had game. I got no game. And when I'm physically in pain, it gave me this great illustration. Your physical pains in the world reminds you of this simple fact. This is not your home. This is not your home. See, when you're young like these guys, they're like, whoa. I mean, they're buff. They're, they're good looking. They're strong. They can eat whatever they want. There are no consequences to their food consumption. This, there's just something wrong about that, you know? But, but when you live any length of time, you realize, man, I got less years to live than I do the ones I've already lived. And it's kind of a sobering idea. And so I want to make my life count. And in light of that, um, we realize that there's some accountability. Look at verses 7 through 9. God's justice demands accountability. Look at verses 7 through 9. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set your iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring your years to an end like a, a sigh. Now, if I'm writing this, I really don't like these three verses. There's too much about anger and wrath and judgment and secret sins. It doesn't play well in our modern economy, does it? But God's wrath is poured out, and listen, you've got to understand that. God's wrath isn't poured out on you. He died on the cross. God's wrath is poured out on our sin, and Moses recognizes that, and he's looking back going, we brought this on ourselves. We had 12 spies. Ten of them said, we can't do this. The land is filled with giants. Two spies, Caleb and his buddy said, no, man, we can do this. They were looking at the foes. They were looking at the fruit. They were looking at the giants. They were looking at God's faithfulness. And because of what happened in Kadesh Barnea, they wandered for 40 years. And sin was poured out, or wrath was poured out upon them. There will be accountability, friends. There is judgment. 
But I got to tell you, I think this anger is more about his jealousy, not just his anger, because he's a jealous God. He doesn't share first place with anybody. Now, I know there's occasional ties in the Olympics, but God doesn't share the first place gold medal podium with anybody. There is not even a close second. You know, over time, I talk to people a lot about God and their relationship and how you come to faith in Christ. And sometimes I run into someone who kind of wants to have a blend. You know, I want Jesus a little bit. I'll take a little of that from this religion. And, you know, can't we learn from everybody and all of that? According to this, no, Jesus doesn't share with anybody. He's number one. And so Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be the priority of your life. He doesn't want to be a piece of your life. He wants to be preeminent in your life. So I say that. It's easy to say. So much harder to live, isn't it? Why is it when I get in some passage, I think I'm going to go this direction, and God says, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no. This wasn't for anything for this church, for ABF. Erwin, this message is for you. I am convicted by all the things that amuse me in life that, that can take preeminence in my life. They're not bad things, but I'll tell you what, they're kind of like this fidget spinner thing that I learned about recently. That's because I went to Camp ABF, let me tell you. You know, I feel like my life is like this. Sometimes it's just spinning what am I doing with my life? Over 40 years ago, I made a decision that I would follow Jesus in vocational ministry, and I've been doing this 39 years. In fact, last year, it's hard, or last week, I just started my sixth year of ministry here at ABF. It's just like, where did the time go in the last five years? But in the fall, my fidget spinner is into fantasy football, and I'm just, oh, man, you know. Aaron Rodgers has got to get me three touchdowns, you know? In the spring and summer, it's like, oh, man, I got to work on that golf game. I got to take out Spock's team for our tournament, so I got to get some better players on my golf team, you know? Or it's Christmas, and like, oh, man, I got to get the right gifts. Let's be honest, I don't get any gifts. I just fund the gifting. My wife does all the shopping. I'm just being honest. All these things, oh, then it's Father's Day, Mother's Day, there's... There's so many things, good things. But I'll tell you what, if Jesus Christ isn't central to your life, then your life is just like a fidget spinner. You're spinning your wheels. I want him to be central. I want to be focused. I want him to be the central driving focus of my life. That's my prayer for me. I hope it's for you too. But then he has to go on, and at the end of verse 8, your secret sins are seen in the light of your presence. I said, why do you have to put that in here this week, Lord? Even our secret sins, God's watching. Depending on whose statistics you read, 73% or more of men wrestle with pornography on a regular basis, and 43% of women do. And so, I want to tell you, this is something I want to be, I, I don't want to get into that. I don't want that to be a distraction in my life. I don't want to go there. I don't want to be a part of my life. 
So I have this verse right next to my, my computer at home. Psalm 101, verse 3. I will set no worthless, worthless, worthless things before my eyes. Or this other verse from Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so if God's justice demands accountability, the accountability question to you today he may be the Savior of your life, but is He the Lord of your life? Or are we just going through life kind of going from one thing to another? The third thing is that if that's true, then in verses 10 to 12, you've got to make your life count for eternity. You've got to make your life count for eternity. Because He ends with this kind of rest with a sigh, like, man, we've been wandering, cause, and you always are wandering when you're fighting him. So he says, make your life count. Look at what he says in verse 10. The, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So the average length of life here on planet earth is about 70 Unless you're, you know, you do something like you don't drink Diet Coke, you never go to In-N-Out, you don't ever get to eat red meat, no tacos for you, no chips and salsa for sure. You got to work out every day. You got your heart rate up. You got to do interval training. So I'm going to die by 70, I'm guessing. All right. So 80, day, 80 years if you kind of do all the good stuff. And he says, and then we're going to fly away. I think it's a veiled rep- uh, reference to potentially the rapture. Someday we're going to go to be with him, or it's just maybe a symbolic of death. And so he says, teach us to number our days. Don't squander it. Don't waste it. What I love about new Christians is they're so excited about getting God's word, and they want to make their life count. And there's some of you in this congregation who come to know the Lord in the last few years, and maybe you're going off to Bible college now, or you're going to go to Patmos, or you're going to do whatever, but you're going to make your life count. Philippians 1.21 gets it right, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. We're going to live for Christ. What are you living for? What are you passionate about? What wakes you up in the middle of night? Now, it's so hard because when I preach, I see people in there and all of a sudden God says, oh, use that illustration. This is not in my notes, but I can't help but use Greg as an illustration because he's healing a second row and he wasn't there first hour, so I didn't do this last hour. But man, this guy is passionate about what he does with basketballs and kids and they listen to him. You saw just a little glimpse of it because he used basketball as a platform to share Jesus Christ and make a difference. And God's completely changed his life. What are you passionate about? Bill Barry's passionate about people who have questions about Christianity and, and faith and doing it in a way that's not banging them over the head with the Bible and being winsome and, and kind and, and relational. I love that. Cameron Rogstead's passionate about people having experiences in community. So he's always doing stuff to get guys together and families should be at, at, in Mexico and let's do this together. What are you passionate about? What is it that God's called you to do that makes you one of his servants? And he says, live for eternity. Make your life count. And if you do that, you'll get a hard wisdom because we realize God's still sovereign no matter what. 
Thirdly, we see God's engagement with us, which is tender in those last few verses, verses 13 to 17. And Moses gives us two prayers for six different things. The first three are together, the next three are together. First, we see a prayer for mercy, love, and joy from verses 13 to 15. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Remember, they were wandering for 40 years. When is this going to end? And because everyone over the age of 20 ultimately dies because they doubted God, they were, they, Moses is saying, God, have pity on us. Has it not been enough? Because remember, Pastor uh, Rabbi Jason last week remind us, a straight line journey was like an 11-day journey. Now, I did some calculations. I think it's about a little over 200 miles, so you're doing some trekking, but clearly you should have gotten there in less than like a month. Forty years, they're wandering around the desert. Imagine what that was like. That's a death march, not a road trip. Lots and lots and lots of people die. If you're the Israeli funeral take, you know, director or morgue guy, you, I mean, it's just a horrendous job for 40 years. Imagine you have to bury your, burying your friends who are dying. And so Moses saying, is there any joy in this? And he says, yeah, satisfy us in the morning. What did the Jews, what were they required to do every morning on that journey? To gather what? The manna, the bread. What's our New Testament counterpart to the manna for us? The Word of God. It's our bread. He's the bread of life. So you want to live in light of eternity? You want to make your life count? Can I tell you, whatever you're doing all the hours of the waking day that you have, would you just try this? Open God's Word first in your day. Had a guy I wanted to go to breakfast the other day, and he said, no, I can't go. I go, why? Because I haven't had time with God's Word. I go, oh, okay, name dropper, going for God for breakfast instead of with me. I get it. I, I, I can live with that. That's good. You've learned, yourself, learned well. Yeah, the bottom line is we got to get in God's Word. If you want your values and priorities to be shaped by God, you got to open God's Word. You say, but I don't know how to do that. Well, I want to help you do that. If you don't know how to do it, call me, write me, email me. I want to help you learn how to get in God's Word. So it's your manna for every day. Amen? Amen. And then Moses is asking at the end of that section, give us at least 40 years of future blessing as we enter the promised land. Replace those 40 years of wandering with 40 years of wonder. And he asks for something else, verses 16 and 17. He asks prayer for God's power, blessing, and success. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. And as if it wasn't clear enough, yes, establish the work of our hands. He's saying, I'm tired of wandering. We got to get on with our lives. God, what are you going to do? And he longs to see God's power on the work, on, 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 work on behalf of his people. And of course, he's referring to Israel's possession of Palestine. But Moses is more concerned 
about God's glory than his own enjoyment. Remember, Moses doesn't get to get in. He doesn't get into the promised land. After all of that, after leading the children of Israel, he doesn't get to go in. But he's praying that his kids and his grandkids will see God's power firsthand, firsthand. Not a secondhand faith, firsthand. I got to tell you right now, I'm so passionate about my kids and my grandkids having a living faith. However long God gives me to live. You know, I've gone from being the cool youth pastor to their uncle to I'm grandpa, right? So papa gets chances of time with his grandkids. My four-and-a-half-year-old grandson spent 15 days in South Africa on his first missions trip with my daughter. I thought she was nuts. But this kid, actually, I saw him praying over other kids as a a four-and-a-half-year-old. That's pretty awesome. I want my life to count. I want the work of my hands to mean something. And I got to just tell you, I think we're walking into a new land here at ABF. We're doing something that no church I know of except one up in Santa Clarita is going to do. And we're going to say, let's do church on Thursday night. You're going, you're nuts. Why would you do Thursday night? Because lost people don't care what night of the week. We got room on Thursday nights. Some of you need to commit to leaving this service. This is the middle of summer. We've never run 450 people in the middle of July. Imagine what it's going to look like in the fall. Would 20 more of you say, yeah, I'm going to move. I'll make a commitment for one more year. I know it's a shameless plug, but it worked with the text, all right? (laughs) But more importantly, what is the work of your hands that God's calling you to do as we wrap up today? I'm going to pray here, and we're going to land this plane. What is the work that God's called you to do? Michelle's going off to Patmos. She'll be gone for six months. Some of you are teaching Bible studies. Some of you are life group leaders. Some of you are Sunday school teachers. Some of you are evangelists. Some of you count the money. Some of you usher. Some of you are guest central. Some of you provide treats. What is it that you're going to do in the work of your hands that God's going to use? Because I believe that God wants to bless you. He wants to give you great success. And in light of eternity, God's in charge, and He's going to use you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that today that we would think about these things, that, Lord, we do know that you are eternal, that our lives are terminal, that you want to use us, that you called us to follow you by making you the Lord of our lives. And even if we find ourselves in this wilderness with some temporary trial that seems like it's never going to end, that, Lord, you will call us to work. Use us, Lord. Use our hands. Establish this work, and may you use us to make a difference for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.